Good day. Uh, this is Michael Muth of Going Global International Interviews. Today we are speaking with Dr. Edward Hamburg, uh, Corporate Director and Advisor to High Technology Company and the former CFO of SPSS. Um, and people can look at SPSS.com to find out more about what that company is about. I know that you were instrumental in taking SPSS global. When did SPSS start their international expansion? Uh, it was actually very early on in the process. Uh, part of it is that the, uh, the basis of what the company did, so the statistical software business, mm-hmm. and statistics actually were far more, uh, were used uh, much more uh, in a widespread form in Europe as opposed to the United States. Mm-hmm. If you go back in your thinking back to uh, Edward Deming, he had much more success in Japan than he did in the United States. Uh, the word statistic comes from the German word, the state. And uh, so the, uh, the actual roots of statistical analysis were far uh, deeper in Europe and particularly the United Kingdom and Germany. So it was quite appropriate that SBSS found fertile soil uh, internationally earlier than a lot of other companies since this application was already an international application. So it was a United States-based software company uh, and developed in the States and primarily out of Stanford and then uh, Chicago. But um, we began, let's see, I started, my association with SPSS began in 1978. I was a trainer for the company. Uh, At that time, I remember us starting to move internationally, and by the time I became an executive with the company in 1986, I bet you that a third of our revenues were already from international sources. And by what time had SPSS's revenues outside the United States exceeded those inside the United States? um, It was 50-50 for a long time. Uh, I would say that it probably began to tip to to more international uh, in the 90s. And that was where uh, Japan, our Japanese operations kicked in uh, in the uh, mid to late 1990s. We started in Japan in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, I remember days when Japan was you know, we, when, when we got our first million dollars out of Japan, and Japan is now in, in double digits uh, in terms of millions. Uh, I remember in, uh, so I became, when I became an executive in 1986, we already had uh, a, a senior vice president for international operations, and uh, we already were developing a pretty uh, mature international infrastructure. So if you think back, that's, some 20-some years ago. Uh, we were very serious about international, and international was very serious about us. Mm-hmm. And how did you do it? In other words, did you approach it directly by opening your own offices? Did you work with partners because they know the local culture, language, and so on? Um, how did you do it? Uh, I would say both. Uh, we did a combination of establishing international offices, uh, we did that uh, primarily out of our original international headquarters in Portland, the Netherlands. 
that's where the first uh, head of international operations uh, lived. Uh, his, uh, he, he expanded us into primarily, I remember very early on going to our operations, uh, direct offices in uh, the United Kingdom, uh, right outside of London. Uh, so our primary place of operations early on, directly with the company, where SBSS employees were found, were in Germany, in Munich, in uh, the Netherlands, and in the United Kingdom. Uh, we also earlier on got involved with Australia. Uh, then we also, however, worked through partners. So there was a, a, a distribution network that was developed on more or less <coughs> a traditional partner distribution model. Some of those distributors, however, and what was kind of interesting about how SPSS approached international development as time went on, is that we developed the concept of an SPSS franchise, an SPSS international franchise. So the way that those work is that, so you had a distributor <coughs> where they would, um, uh, you would go to uh, a company by some name uh, that also that distributed SBSS products along with a bunch of other products. What happened was is that we evolved to the concept of a franchise where you flew the SBSS flag in your country. In your country, you got exclusive rights to selling SBSS products and services in that country. And you could only sell SPSS product. So it became, you became SPSS Incorporated in France or in Hungary or in Greece or in uh, um, Spain. Uh, and they, the customer would think that they were dealing with uh, an SPSS operation, but in fact, you were dealing with one of our franchise operations. And the, what uh, the, the franchises had to adhere to a rather strict set of rules of the road in terms of how they behaved as, a, as, a, as an SPSS quasi-office. Uh, there also was, however, a, uh, as time went on, there was a formula that was built into the SPSS franchise contracts that enabled SPSS at any point to purchase, to buy out the franchise. So the notion was is that rather than the organization build itself up and then we could walk in and wipe them out, essentially, with the, the standard distribution model. You go, thank you for building up this national entity. We are now taking it over, and you're, you know, thank you for your time. Uh, we didn't want to have that kind of undercurrent adversarial relationship with, uh, with our partners. And so we built in this formula that essentially made it very worthwhile for them to build up the business and for us it gave us the flexibility to either let them proceed, as many of them did, or we ended up buying some of them out, according to the formula. So, for example, the SBSS office in Spain, which is now an SBSS subsidiary, um, was purchased from the franchise uh, from the franchise operator. That's uh, one of the biggest examples of, uh, of our international development strategy. So, each year we would look at the different franchises. 
uh, franchise operations, and we would say, well, is it one that we wanted to turn into a company office and five and out, or just continue on as, as they were? And so you now have uh, this, um, there are a few franchises still existing, and I think they're probably, I don't know how IBM will work it, but, for example, SBS is free. It never made sense to have a subsidiary office in, uh, in, 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 in Greece. It just wasn't a large enough market. Uh, not a large enough market in the Czech Republic or in Hungary. Uh, so those uh, are franchises in Switzerland. was a very nice, uh, very successful SPSS franchise. Italy was one that we would look at regularly. Uh, but remains uh, over time in SPSS franchise. So it was one of those. Italy is a big enough market for us, but hey, the guy who runs Italy is just doing a good job. And it was like, you know, why are we going to screw something up? That basically, Italy is a, a complicated company in which to do business. So if it w- Okay, we are picking up again with Ed Hamburg. And Ed, uh, we were talking about SPSS and um, franchise model for expanding internationally. I just have a couple questions about how that works. Um, usually when someone buys a franchise, they have to pay a franchise fee. So were SPSS's franchises structured like that typical franchise environment with which we're mostly familiar? No. Uh, there was not a franchise fee required. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was actually, uh, and this was primarily because the the, the people who set it up within SPSS were sales. Uh, there were the sales professionals. Uh, and it was a, a bit of a, a certain amount of discussion internally as to whether or not it should be that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, sales guys are always trying to make life easier for them in terms of you your charge a fee, you can, it's harder to recruit, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, as in my role uh, as chief financial officer, I was less than impressed with the fact that we didn't uh, charge a franchise fee. Mm-hmm. Uh, be that as it may, we didn't. Uh, and so the, instead, the, uh, the, the selection was based on whether or not uh, the developers of this um, network felt that the partner was a viable one going forward and could properly represent the SPSS value proposition. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, then on the other side, you mentioned that you had a formula when SPSS would essentially annually look at its franchisees around the world and decide if they would like to, to make an offer or, or bring some of the franchisees closer into the fold. In other words, buy them out. Um, is there anything you can divulge about the formula that you use simply because it's essentially an equity transaction, you're buying them out, and valuation issues are always sticky? Yes, I, I, I can. It was... Uh, First of all, our friend, we received about 50% of revenues uh, overall from the franchises and a little higher than that from distributorships. But from a franchise operation, we would get, they would get more of the new license revenue that they sold and we would get more of the maintenance stream. By and large, however, I used to, in my head, think of it about as 50-50. The partners would keep 100% of their professional services uh, fees because n- normally we would do business with partners who had a consulting practice and wanted to augment it with the SPSS software. Mm-hmm. So figure we got 50 cents on the dollar. So of um, 
of the software dollar. Mm -hmm. And then the formula was a percentage of the previous, the, the immediately preceding year's royalties to us. Mm -hmm. So whatever we got from them, we had a, a percentage that we would, uh, that was fixed in the contract that said whenever we wanted to with six months notice, we could say that we were willing to pay the buyout price. And they could at any point calculate what that buyout price was mm -hmm. so that they could see that their investment in terms of developing the, um, the territory would uh, come back to them. It wasn't one where a lot of companies that I'm, with which I'm familiar and with us, with us, I think most of us are familiar, where there's a tension between the company and the partner. Uh, the, company, the partner builds it up, and the company, when they want to, just kind of takes it over. And I must say that this, whether or not we charge fees or whether or not um, uh, it always was a, uh, not to say the word intentions within the relationship, but I must say that I very much appreciated the uh, straightforwardness of this operating model. It was fair to us and it was fair to the partner. Yeah, I mean, I've certainly seen my share of adversarial relationships. <laughs> well, there's enough inbuilt adversarial uh, characteristics in any of these relationships. So if you take this major one off, uh, I think it, it allows you to focus in on what it takes to jointly build the business as opposed to having one of the parties always concerned that uh, all of their good investment can go to naught. Now, one other thing about franchising is typically... Um, you have to be fairly highly invested in the brand. And where was SPSF as a brand at that time? And how did the partners you know, support the brand? Did they have to buy into the brand? How much did they buy into the brand and so on? Yeah, so at that, by the time we started this uh, framework, the SPSF brand was known mm -hmm. and had value out there within a uh, more limited constituency, but a constituency nonetheless. Mm -hmm. So among academic customers, our initial academic customers and our initial government customers, particularly in Europe, where the name recognition was even higher than it, than it might have been in the United States at certain points, uh, there was value to the partner to attaching itself to the SDS grant. Mm -hmm. So we had already gotten to the point where in some ways the brand recognition was greater than the revenues of the company uh, mm -hmm. probably in those earlier years. Mm -hmm. okay. um, and then moving right along, um, as you alluded to earlier, um, you know, SPSF in some ways had more success in Europe just because people had a, a predisposition for statistics and so on. And numbers and statistically oriented kinds of things and these days predictive analytics translate really well simply because numbers cross cultures better than words do. Despite that, were there things that you ran into where SPSS had to address cultural differences in the expansion and selling in other places, selling and selling? Absolutely. Uh, they're managing an international 
uh, sales support administrative network necessarily um, means that you're going to confront uh, cultural diversity that, uh, that exists out there. And one of the things that is particularly difficult for uh, firms based in the United States who are pretty much accustomed to doing business the way that we do it here. And uh, what happens is, is that as time goes on in key areas of the organization, of the company organization, you have to bring in people that are not only respectful of these cultural differences, but are uh, quite comfortable in living within this uh, kind of, how shall I call it, um, more complicated, um, more complicated arrangement. Uh, it is, however, absolutely essential that one learn how to do this. Excuse me, you mentioned you have to bring in other people. In other words, are you talking about consultants? or other service providers like lawyers, accountants, and so on? No, I'm talking about a different different type of employee, okay. usually more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. It's uh, among companies have to evaluate who are the appropriate personnel to take them to various levels of growth. And not only is it from a technical or administrative capability, but it's also from a business sophistication standpoint. And I think that what happened at, at SBSS was that uh, as we moved from one stage to another, and I was uh, um, uh, honored to be a part of a lot of these different growth stages, uh, we had to bring in people that were capable of stepping up to the, ne to the next level or who had been there and done that even better. And those who are either capable of stepping up or been there and done that understand the absolutely essential nature of being, uh, of, of, of accepting and working within the multicultural kind of atmosphere, uh, business atmosphere that uh, <coughs> is appropriate to all, to all global business. Mm -hmm. okay. um, I also saw on FTSF's website that you have representation in 100 plus countries, um, but the site is only localized in a couple dozen languages. I'm just curious, how did you make the decision which sites to localize or which, into which languages to localize and which not, and how you did localize it? In other words, whether you kept it internally, if you farmed it out externally, uh, maybe to local in-country partners, local in-country offices. Yeah, I'll answer the second question first on okay. how we did it. Mm -hmm. uh, it was uh, basically a hybrid model. Mm -hmm. Some we did ourselves, some we farmed out. Some we, uh, and, and actually when it came right down to it, it almost always required a combination of insiders and outsiders. Mm -hmm. uh, even when we would um, contract out the localization, our internal people had to do the quality assurance on it, and uh, it's hard for any contractor, no matter how sophisticated, to be able to essentially judge whether or not it's really market worthy and in, in, uh, true to the value proposition and true to the uh, quality standards and performance of the, of the, the software. So uh, there were some that were done by our international offices, mm -hmm. um, some that were, uh, that were done in, the, in, in our offices in Chicago, but I would say that um, we, as time went on, we, we found more and more capable localization firms. And the price of localization got better and better 
as the uh, localization process became more and more capable of being automated. Uh, so that then leads to your first question, which is how did we make the decision on which to localize and to what languages we localize and which not. Basically, it was an economic call. Uh, you do an estimate on whether or not uh, there's a, an appropriate return on the investment for localization, and it's not just the initial localization. I mean, once you commit to doing a translation, you're in it for every uh, update to the software. And as our technology profile broadens, you can't just you can't provide it in Spanish, and you can't provide one set of products in Spanish and not the others. So basically, when you make the economic decision to commit to a, uh, uh, supporting a local language, you are making a long-term and broad commitment. So you try very hard to do it in languages where there is a substantial audience at a broad base for what it is that we provided, where uh, many of the, uh, uh, where the, where our software is really only going to be used by the analyst population, those who are more sophisticated and more educated. Most uh, were quite capable in English. And as a result, uh, given the, the number of uh, Ukrainian speakers, for example, uh, you know, it, it's, it was unlikely we were ever going to do that. Or Greek speakers. Uh, Did you have a a set threshold or bottom line number that you used if you had X number of users above that it made sense to localize. Not to my not to my recollection. And also not only was the cost of the uh, not only was that it was hard to estimate the audience, but the other was that the cost per localization was no longer equal. Uh, sometimes you had uh, uh, a partner that insisted that they would take on the the, the lion's share of the work, uh, or the, the the cost. Some languages are more difficult than others. Those are much more difficult, much more expensive than going, for example, from Italian once you have Spanish. So. I don't remember having a strong formula, but it was definitely ROI-based. And we had to think of the ROI not just specific to a single product, uh, but across the board and whether or not we thought that market had expansion capability over time. Um, and you had also said that SPSS granted exclusive rights to its partners, franchisees, and Obviously, in countries where SPSS had their own offices, um, I guess my assumption is they were solely responsible for that exclusive right. But were there any uh, channel conflicts? In other words, when you bought out former companies, when you bought new companies, were there channel conflicts and how did you resolve them? Uh, channel conflicts is a fact of life. Uh, it is, you, you can't eliminate channel conflict, all you can do is deal with it, uh, manage it the best one can. Uh, there, the, you, you gave an example of kind of the easiest source of channel conflict, which is where we would buy a company, they would have a distribution network, and we would have to uh, integrate it into our existing partnerships. And that was done on 
carefully and with pain. Uh, so how can you avoid the pain? You, you can't. Or at least mitigate the pain. You can't. What you do is, first of all, many times we would buy, we were, usually with the acquisitions that we did, we were buying capability that up to that point we did not have. So that meant not only did we not have that capability technically and often sales-wise uh, in Chicago or in our various uh, established offices, but it meant that we really didn't have it in the partnerships either in our franchises and distributorships. So, for example, SPS was began as a statistical software company. Most of the initial franchises were quite comfortable and capable with that statistical technology. When we started to buy artificial intelligence-based uh, technologies, uh, our partners didn't really know how to sell, support, and well enough uh, represent the, the, the overall value proposition. So in many instances, it naturally sorted itself out in the marketplace because basically we left the uh, established distribution network intact and made it an augment to what it was that we had. And then over time, over the course of a five-year period, we would see in some instances whether one or the other, whether our original partner or our new partner, was capable of integrating the other's business and expanding into it. In some instances, we found that to be the case. And others, I think, uh, I bet you today there are still remnants of where we had uh, 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 different dis uh, distribution partners who represent different pieces of technology because of their particular expertise. In the end, and this was, was of course, a source of conflict internally as well as external with the partner, and that is it's about the customer. Right? It's not about the partner. It's not about the company. It's about the customer. So what, at the end of the day, is what services the customer most effectively and seamlessly. And as long as we kept that in mind, that, it, it, so again, you don't avoid the pain, but it makes the pain worthwhile because uh, you are doing the job that you have to do. Uh, the other way, by the way, that uh, you have uh, channel conflict, and the one that is far more interesting, is where uh, SPSS expanded to uh, service global So we would sell the software, for example, to Deutsche Bank in New York City, but it would be deployed in 35 offices around the world. Well, you know, when it comes to supporting that office in Greece or in Hungary or in, uh, uh, then who has that responsibility? Well, that's an interesting question. Well, as far as we were concerned, it, we needed local support. We went to the local uh, office. Or if we needed to deploy corporate personnel in order to support this customer, we didn't have to ask permission and kind of, um, you know, check at the border with our, with our partner. So this became, this, this whole process of how do you service, expand, um, uh, train, global customers is uh, probably one of the more, um, even more difficult, uh, although I'll be a more fun, uh, issue of channel conflict. It's not like an internal channel conflict, it's basically a resources issue. In other words, you know, asking people in different places to put resources to things for which they might not be getting revenue. Well, I think, I think that's, that's right, but it is also a contractual issue. 
Uh, so, you know, normally the, in a situation like this, the partner will take out the contract, which they haven't taken out in years, and they will start pointing to paragraphs and phrases, which uh, might suggest under certain interpretations that they get they get paid for this or that, that, that the corporates can't do this. And as a result, one of the one of the things that we've got really good at over time was um, uh, making uh, was keeping our, our contract being process uh, current to address new uh, circumstances as we were developing as a company and as, and as we were confronting these new circumstances. So this is where, <coughs> when we were recruiting new um, newer partners, they got newer versions of contracts and <coughs> excuse me and uh, as uh, old contractual relationships expired, we would try to make sure that they were refreshed with newer contracts that were far more fitting of contemporaneous circumstances. Okay. Um, and as, as we all well know, IBM is in the process of acquiring SPSS. What do you think uh, the future holds for SPSS's international operations after its acquisition by IBM? I really don't know. I, I, this would require my knowledge of the, uh, more knowledge of how IBM would intend to do the integration. My assumption is that uh, they'll keep it intact for at least a period of time. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, IBM is, is a, is a de facto, I mean, it is no question, it is global in a way that we could only dreamt of. And my, my sense is that the long-term uh, goal of IBM like, will be like, like as we were as acquirers, and that is they will want to make the SPSS partnering network consistent with their, their established model. And I would, I, that's, my, that's, that's my guess, is that they will behave like most good acquirers do, and address again from the, looking at it from the customer standpoint, not from their own internal one. What is it that we have to? What do we want to do with this, uh, with this uh, technology and other capability to uh, pursue the customers that uh, we are targeting out there? Okay. Okay. Um, now, moving right along, I know that your career after SPSS consists of working on the board of directors of at least half a dozen high technology firms. And taking a look at some of those firms, it looks like a number of them were quite successful internationally as well. So I'd like to, to just bounce them off of you and learn the differences with SDSS and what we can learn from their successes as well, like SDSS. So first of all, uh, Perceptive Software has 2,000 customers in 45 countries. What are the differences from SDSS and what can we learn from it? Well, Perceptive Software is, has been pursuing international business the way that many smaller companies do in their beginning years, which is it tends to be more opportunistic. Mm -hmm. uh, international customers find you, they buy your stuff if it's any good. And as a result, you become international, uh, whether you like it or not. 
And so uh, I, I think that uh, with Perceptive Software and some of the other companies uh, with which I work, uh, they have pursued international business more on an opportunistic basis. So it was 2,000 customers in 45 countries, they were sold into all of those? Well, first of all, of the 2,000 customers, uh, it's under 10% are international customers for Perceptive Software. So, I mean, none of the companies with which I work have anywhere close to the international presence that SPSS has. Uh, okay. uh, now, this part of it is the nature of the application. Again, the statistical and data analysis application is, um, was, again, probably as, as established, if not more established internationally than it was in the United States. Um, perceptive software does document management uh, software, so I'm not sure that document management is biased in any particular way. No, perceptive software is primarily has a has a, a customer base based largely in the United States, and is pursuing is developing an international strategy. And what we're doing there, like in the in some of my other firms, is moving from. That, that appropriate stage of, of opportunistic pursuit of global business to a strategy. What is the international strategy? Do we, uh, what is it that, where is it that we want to attack the world direct? As an extension, as in Perceptive Software's case, uh, we want to uh, uh, make it an extension of our direct sales force. And where do we want to go through a partnership network? And what is the profile of an appropriate um, uh, partner, et cetera, et cetera. Now, one of my other companies, uh, Interactive Intelligence Incorporated, has primarily a partnering model. And so they, uh, uh, they, they address the same questions, but in a slightly different way. So in, in which countries overseas do we just make, do we attack the world uh, as an extension of our traditional partnering strategy, and how much do we really think is more appropriate to address directly, more of a direct sales model. Uh, the other is that none of my uh, smaller private companies uh, have large uh, development operations, uh, or development operations in consequence overseas. SPSS uh, had uh, a couple hundred developers in the UK, had a number of developers in uh, France, in the Netherlands, in uh, China, SBSS was a, was a global business, not only from the sales and support and, and, and services, but also as, uh, as software got developed. Um, my, uh, the, the other companies with which I work are primarily uh, United States-based firms, uh, except for one, I should say. Keep forgetting about. Uh, I work with a firm called Core Security Technologies. Core Security began as an Argentinian company, so it still today has two thirds of its workforce based out of Buenos Aires. Uh, but it is so it is establishing more of a presence in the United States, including its headquarters. Uh, so, except for Core, where but. Again, we have the, this operation in, in, in Argentina, but even Core is looking at, okay, so we, we, we sell the software globally. How is it that we now move from the, the, sales, the sales and services 
process is kind of running us, us running it, and getting it more, uh, what's the appropriate strategy for developing it uh, going forward? And one of the, the roles that I've played on, uh, on these boards and in these companies is to uh, try to get these firms to adopt a strategic approach to international development as early as possible. Uh, not too early, because sometimes uh, I'm not sure I know the answer to that question. But it probably too early is probably one where you're spending time that should be spent developing markets that are right here in front of you, and you're busy shuttling staff and training resources and uh, uh, developing partners. Uh, in far reaches or 6,000 miles away as opposed to 60 miles away or 600 miles away. So I think that, there, again, there's no, I haven't come up with a, a formula here, but at some point when your base business matures to a level where you have it stabilized and you're ready to move to that next level of growth, uh, perhaps it's to put a, uh, a number on it, perhaps it's between somewhere between five and fifteen million dollars in revenue. Mm-hmm. At that point, you, you ha- I, I would encourage companies to start taking a look at global development, uh, at, at, at making themselves more into a global player, so that when I, I think that the larger you get trying to rationalize processes that were built kind of opportunistically up to that point can be very difficult and very expensive. So that's why I would encourage, that's why I encourage them to, to do it sooner rather than later. Not too soon that it keeps you from paying attention to the, to the appropriate business at hand in those early stages of the company, but not waiting too long to the point where you have to undo a lot of stuff with the limited resources of uh, being a $20 million, $25 million company. I will say, I think competitive pressures are so great these days, and it's important to look earlier, because if you don't, because so much is out there on the Internet, other competitors can take a look at you and start approaching other places if you don't. And so, um, you know, those kinds of things, I think, are accelerating faster than they have in the past. No question. And, and I know that you also work with a company called SendMail, and I understand their model is a little bit different as well. Now, SendMail is, um, does have a sizable international presence, mm-hmm. and uh, they have a direct sales model. Mm-hmm. Their model, however, is constrained to they really service Fortune 1000. They're, they're really targeting Fortune 1000 customers. And as a result, they will pursue Fortune 1000 customers regardless of where they happen to live in the, in the world. And the direct so they uh, they have established uh, international presence that extends from the headquarters in uh, in uh, Emeryville, but uh, and and works out of that. So their international headquarters is in the UK, uh, which I think is where a lot of companies go when they're uh, establishing their initial footprint uh, outside of the United States. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, a lot of people assume will take them to the continent, but I'm disappointed to find that's not necessarily so. I think that's right. 
uh, I, I, that, which is one of the reasons why I happen to be a fan of the Netherlands as being a place to go. Uh, if I were to kind of wave a wand and want to start my own international operation for a U.S. company, uh, I would look more to a place like the Netherlands or perhaps even Denmark, where the infrastructure is excellent, the uh, language skills, uh, particularly in English, are fabulous, uh, probably better than ours. And uh, they, that is a real presence uh, on the continent. Uh, and, by the way, they're very good markets, particularly the Netherlands, which, uh, in my experience, buys more software, more technology per capita than in any country in the world. Where did that come from? Do you have a source? Or, or well, at SPSS, uh, we used to examine, uh, we used to take the amount of revenues we got out of our given country and divide it by its population. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Netherlands was far, uh, um, was off the charts in terms of the amount of consumption of our kind of software per, per head. And I, I bet you that that is, uh, not an oddity, not necessarily on our level, but, but not an oddity. It's a highly commercial, uh, highly, it's a well-developed commercial sector, a very well-developed public sector, and a very well-developed academic sector. So it's, uh, it's it, when you look at it, it, in the end, it's not surprising at all. Uh, they also tend to be um, uh, very adaptive to new technology. Uh, which, again, I don't know if we've yeah, never studied such cultural patterns, and so, but uh, going back to the original point here, uh, is that the UK is often the default market where U.S. companies go because they speak English, but uh, particularly in current circumstances, that's not the only place uh, that where, where that's done. There are some equal there are some environments that are as good as the UK to establish operations, um, as good if not better. And I would encourage firms, and I encourage my own firms, uh, to, to think outside of the UK box. Now, the fact that the UK also happens to be an excellent market in itself, but so you're getting a base of operations plus you're being able to you're able to address a uh, usually the second or third the fourth largest market in the world for what it is yourself. And just, I mean, I'm a big fan of the Netherlands, Belgium, Scandinavia, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong, all those kind of places. You know, smaller, a lot more outward looking, in a lot of cases pretty technology oriented. Um, I'm, I'm definitely in that camp. Uh, now you brought up one other thing um, with some of the small firms that you're working with. You know, they are definitely growing their international revenue, so that addresses the demand side. A couple of years ago, there was talk among the entrepreneurial community that it was almost a requirement to have offshore development to get funding these days. Do you still see that happening, or is that not as much of a requirement as it was perceived to be a few years ago? Well, I don't know the answer to whether or not it's a requirement for I can tell you, though, that in, in my experience, it's a really good thing to have uh, development capabilities outside of this country. Uh, there are, first of all, the talent pool over in, in, in Europe and in Asia and in Latin America are uh, 
much better than uh, than people realize, and in some cases better than what we have in the United States. Moreover, uh, I've become a uh, I became a, a real advocate of uh, follow the sun type of, of uh, development, where firms now have to very very more quickly develop new technology, replace the current technologies, update it, etc. If you if all your software development is done in the United States or in one place, let's just say wherever it is, right, in one place, you get one software, you have one turn per day to be able to build software. And as a result, you have your requirements documents produced by various marketing departments and through agile programming, tasks, and all sorts of other things. And um, you get one shot per day at turning out that stuff. On the other hand, being able to, um, with the tools for um, managing code, et cetera, et cetera, and communications, to be able to start a project in Chicago, pass it to the Chinese, who then work on it, and who then pass it to the French or the UK guys, who then pass it to back to the United States. Why can't you get two or three turns um, in, a, in a given day where... It, it's it's a competitive advantage to be able to not only I think the soccer zone better that comes out of those kinds of circumstances because you get better talent uh, on it in, in many instances, but the other is that there's just you can get more done within the the, the time span of the 24 hour day. Now there you're, you're you're kind of changing the rules of the game and how you develop software. So I'm a big fan of this global development. Uh, even if you increase, even if you, you go to one offshore operation, uh, and I actually don't like it from offshore. I mean, it's like, what's, which is, the, what, what's offshore, right? So it's global development. It's having, uh, techni- it's having development capability in multiple locations. And uh, the management of these centers can be a little complicated, but uh, I'd rather manage that than channel conflict, you know, kind of. So uh, I, I, I just think it's, uh, it's, a, it's an established trend. I, I encourage the companies with which I work to entertain this notion mm-hmm. and to move to it as quickly as they can. Yeah, and I think every time you have more eyes looking at code, that's going to be better. Number one and number two, just as a risk mitigation strategy, again, you have more people looking at things. I think that's the only help. Okay, <coughs> moving right along. Um, just a few general questions as we wrap up. Um, you do work with Morgan Stanley Private Equity, the special firm, and know that um, one of your specialties is expanding into international markets. Are there any general suggestions that you have for small technology companies when expanding into international markets? Is there a standard plan or framework, as you mentioned with SPSF, that Morgan Stanley and you use when advising small companies in expanding internationally? Well, I, I don't think there's a standard plan for Morgan Stanley. Uh, each of the uh, each of the Morgan Stanley people bring their own perspectives and experiences. To the, to the table. What I what I try to do in uh, with the various companies with which I'm involved is 
I try to get them to stop thinking opportunistically about international and to develop a framework and then adhere to that framework. Try to stay within it. Trying to develop an international, trying to get them to think about developing, expanding globally as an extension of their actual business, number one. So that it's not a, it's not a, another thing to do, but it is a, it, it definitely naturally extends from the core business that they have. And I try to get them to think about it from as a structured, disciplined process as opposed to what many of, many companies do, which is, well, they met a guy on a plane who, you know, can, can sell over here, or they draw, they parachuted in a couple of employees who wanted to move to London and thought that, gee, there's a lot of people, a lot of opportunity here, or, so it is, or it's a customer found out about them through the web, and it happened to be based in Germany, so they sold to them, and now that, so while you don't want to say no to opportunities when they, you know, hit you in the, in the face or when they knock on the door, that's not the way to run, that, that, that's not running your business, that's letting your business run you. So how do you start to, and, and by the way, to think about it holistically, and that is, it's not just making the sales. Customer has to be serviced. You gotta, they got problems, uh, uh, not only with the usage, but they have consulting services. They, you got to think about it. Uh, how are they going to make? How are they going to pay the bill? How are you going to get maintenance revenue? Uh, they, you know, how do you establish the long-term customer relationship? And so, unless you start thinking about it in this holistic fashion, you end up getting real disoriented to uh, firefighting. Uh, you're, you're kind of going, well, gee, we were successful in Germany last year, and this year we're not. Well, you, didn't, you, you don't understand why you weren't successful in Germany. You made a couple sales. Right? That's different. So how do you begin to develop these frameworks early, as early on in the process as you can? And that's really the approach that I would, uh, I, I would, that I try to, uh, to, 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 uh, in part to the companies with which I work when I, when I advise various other uh, particularly smaller companies. Now, I don't deal with a lot of startups. For me, my, my, my basic area of expertise are I only do high-technology companies, and I only do firms at the low end would be $10 million in revenues, and high-end would be $300 million in revenues. Uh, when you get smaller than that, you're not necessarily, uh, I, I, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, and if you're over 300 million, you're too big for what my experience uh, base really can, can help with. Uh, but when you're in, it's, but at SPSS, we really began to, to develop this framework in the 10 to $15 million range. And I think that was right. Uh, and so the earlier, the better. Another thing, um, a lot of technology companies these days are much more service companies than product companies. And if you're going international, 
in many ways, that changes how you do it. In other words, if you have a software product which you can localize, you can <coughs> move that through channels, um, you know, create a distribution structure, and, and pass a lot of responsibility down to partners and so on. If you're an IT services company with a lot more, uh, you know, consulting and so on and so on, Essentially, you have to replicate your business with laborers and workers in different countries throughout the world. So expanding internationally is rep replicating your base business in a lot of different places throughout the world. Do you have any suggestions for technology companies who are more services-oriented as opposed to product-oriented? Well, I, I do work with one IT services firm. I'm on the board of a uh, company called Foodform, mm -hmm. which does high-level network services firms. So they and, and forgive me if my characterization is incorrect. Because no, I think it's right. Uh, you need uh, – it's all about ground groups. Mm -hmm. right? And uh, they – now, I, I must say that my, my limited experience in this regard is that at food point, you're dealing with top companies where English speaking is uh, almost a prerequisite, even when our guys are on the ground at Saudi Telecom. I mean, it, it, but going back to the, your, your, your basic question, for services companies, it is about basically replicating the human capital infrastructure everywhere in the world and delivering consistently that same quality uh, service. So, yeah, I, I mean, this, there's no magic potion here. The degree to which you can get your service delivery model down to a more of a, uh, a package or a replicable model, that makes it easier. Uh, and... I know a bunch of my product companies that have services capability, that what they try to do is, is get those services deliverable into as uh, standardized a format as you possibly can. But for basically services firms, I mean, your human capital infrastructure is who you are, and the degree to which you can scale is directly related to your ability to replicate those uh, performance standards and capability um, uh, inventories in as many different as many places as possible. And um, last general question: You sit on the board of directors of a number of different firms, and a number of these firms are vastly international. In other words, lots of foreign customers. Some of them, I assume, uh, probably have international components on the supply side as well, maybe development in different places throughout the world and so on. I guess my point is, at the board director level, it doesn't seem as if boards reflect the geographical diversity of their customers, their suppliers, and in some cases, their employees. Do you think that's a problem, and is there anything we should be doing to change that? I think it's a good question. It's an interesting one. Uh, I, for example, have never been invited to sit on any boards of international companies. And uh, actually, that's not true. I, I, I've been approached by one, but uh, but I don't sit on the boards of international companies. And I, uh, those that exist outside of North America, and I and I really welcome that opportunity. I think it'd be really interesting. 
Uh, I think right now that uh, boards have, uh, companies want boards that where communications uh, are facilitated by some proximity, some geographic proximity. Uh, but they, 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 they want it, on all of the boards on which I sit, there are people who at least can claim to have direct on-the-ground experience in working globally. So I think that that's a way of, it's an initial step. But I must say, in all of the, uh, particularly the larger companies with which I'm associated, we do talk about, uh, maybe it's time to start bringing on somebody internationally. Now, I'm on the board of one company called Interland Electronics, and one of our board members is Taiwan. Uh, uh, the company has, you know, has a large Asian manufacturing uh, operation. So, yeah, I mean, how do you do that without having the perspective of somebody who uh, comes in from China on a, on a regular basis who can actually shoot over to the mainland if, in fact, we, we need to over in a I do think that for to change the law, in Sarbanes-Oxley. And I, I represent, I'm part of the new generation of board members who uh, I take this as a career. I spend it as, I spend it, my full-time job is being on the board of directors of different companies. And I find incredible uh, leverage among the different experiences that I have. So it's not a, I don't just kind of work a day job, but then every once in a while I kind of think about being a board person. Mm-hmm. So that, that's already a transition in the role of the board, and I've watched by the board memberships change to a more and more uh, active and uh, more contributing, more responsible uh, kind of uh, setup. Did you have a feeling for how many more people like you there are out there sitting on board? Yeah, I think there are more and more every day. Uh, Do you have a percentage? I don't. I don't. But um, there are more. I know that the people that we've added uh, to the various boards uh, were replaced. We were we did replace them. They are not sitting CEOs who are doing it part-time, but either retired CEOs, retired uh uh, they are retired or, um, uh, yeah, I would say retired operating professionals who have said, you know, this is, I didn't realize, this is a new way to, uh, to be still involved in the game, but, and be able to leverage all of the operating experience that I had. I mean, I think this is the best gig I've ever had. I mean, this is, uh, uh, I mean, I spent 25 years as a operating executive, and it's like, wow. I mean, I get to, um, I'm involved with corporate governance on the other side, and uh, I know because I was a, uh, an operating executive where the line is between governance and management, and the, where a board can be helpful and where a board can get in the way. Uh, I think that there, as boards become more important to companies, they attract a better grade of board members. And I think as they pay real money, uh, they attract a better grade of board members. So, so in other words, as opposed to equity. As opposed to just equity. But also, I mean, board, board membership was, even if it was 
just equity, we don't a lot of equity. Uh, but now it's, uh, it's more equity, it's more cash, it's more responsibility. Uh, I mean, there are, I have, I actually said for seven different companies, and uh, if you take the direct meetings from my various companies, I'm usually on a plane once a week. So that's, that's it's hard to do, uh, now I, I, I think I'm pretty much at capacity. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I think you have to have a certain set of skill, knowledge, and experience to be able to do that. And, you know, some boards have to be careful of the composition. You know, they can't be all people like you. I mean, I mean you need a certain number of people with direct experience right now. And, Absolutely. And, and, but you need a group of me. You uh, as well. Right. And, for example, an interactive intelligence board, public company. So uh, my colleagues on that board, uh, Mark Hill, is the lead director, is the founder of Baker Hill, is the CEO of Experience a number of years ago. And he, so he's retired, I guess, from active service in, in that regard. But he's a uh, venture capitalist and he, uh, an angel investor, and he's on boards uh, now full time. Uh, Dick Rex. You know Dick? Oh, sure. Right. So Dick and I are on the board uh, at Interactive Intelligence. And then at the same time, so we, and we just had, added a guy, uh, Rich Halprin, who was the former uh, head of sales marketing and, and uh, at SSA. Uh, and it was an IBM guy, a CEO, ex-CEO. But we also have on the Interactive board uh, the chief information officer at Eli Lilly. So that speaks to exactly what you're saying, which is you have most of the board, which is made up of uh, professional board people, and then you have some day job people just to make sure that uh, we're connected to the realities of day-to-day business. Well, in some ways, I guess maybe the good thing that you're not on the international board is so these complaints that you're making would be even farther and more exhausting. Yeah, they would be. They would be. But um, I think the benefits would far surpass the cost. I think it would be, I I would like to think that maybe when uh, one of my companies gets gets bought or uh, uh, that it gets replaced by a, a, a seat on a, a high-technology company, an international high-technology company. Now, again, when you specialize like I do, you can do more. If you can't do seven boards if one of them is an insurance company and one of them is an employee manufacturing and that kind of stuff. So one way to develop uh, is, to, is, again, to think strategically about one's role as a corporate director and advisor, and that is, uh, you know, I just... I just don't do companies. I'm not, I just don't do audit committee chairmanships. Okay. Well, so you really get leverage. Uh, you're, there are synergies, and frankly, it's in some ways uneconomical to just do one or two boards. I have to train myself to do this stuff. So i got to train myself. It's the same training, same board training, and same reading and stuff that you do one. So you might as well you know, be able to talk about the same stuff in as many situations as uh, makes sense. Uh, final more personal question. Uh, looking at your background, I saw that uh, you got a PhD at the University of Chicago, and one of your areas of emphasis was comparative Middle Eastern politics. I'm just curious how that helped you in the business world since then. Yeah, well, I started as a Middle East area specialist. 
that's a graduate student. Right. And okay. it doesn't look like you technically had any business education at all. Uh, no undergraduate, no MBA. I mean, you're a, a social scientist type of guy. So I am a, a no, I am a social scientist. Um, and I started at the Middle East Area Specialist and then um, involved, involved. I and then developed into, uh, I became more interested in statistical analysis, empirical analysis of human behavior than I was in studying the impact of, um, of Islam as a, um, a political force, which was one of my, er- some of my earlier days. And uh, um, so I made that, I made first the academic transition, to, and that's how I got into the software business, was uh, mm-hmm. uh, my, my mentor at SPSS, uh, my, my mentor, my academic mentor, was the founder of SPSS. Ah. So it's a very straight line between where I started academically and where I ended up in business world. Um, yeah, I, I learned everything on the ground from a business standpoint. Uh, but the software business, when I entered it 25, 30 years ago, was in, I mean, you didn't go to school to learn the software business. There weren't any schools to learn that. Uh, the other is that when it was, since I started on the training side, I was one of the first sales professionals at SPSS, and then I moved over to the marketing role, and then I've done support, I've done consulting services, I've done, I've done basically everything in the software business except code. And although I supervise code at the very point. So, you know, you know there's nothing like uh, being there and doing it as a way of learning it. Now, it's not necessarily the most elegant way of learning. Um, so those special settings for, you know, doing business in Israel or other places in the Middle East? Or oh, back to your original question on, I, I think what my, my Middle Eastern training helped me with is going back to your cultural question. Uh, you study the Middle East, you learn the importance of understanding culture, respecting culture. We're understanding the importance, the primacy of culture, that you can't relate to human beings in places outside of the United States unless you take the time to learn about them and unless you develop a very, very genuine respect for who they are. So when I was in, when I spent my time in Cairo and the various other points in North Africa and of course Israel is easy, but so when you go into the Arab world, then it's not only you confront issues of language, but then religion and how they think of time is entirely different than the way that, and they're not... The rest of the world thinks of time compared to Americans. Well, and, and that's why once you, if anything, uh, learning, studying the Middle East and then dealing with other aspects of the world, it's kind of like swinging the lead bat in baseball, you know, as you warm up. Uh, you know, middle, if you could, if you learn to be, to handle the cultural complexities of the Middle East, dealing with the games is a cakewalk. <laughs> so, what, did you speak Arabic, or did you learn? I, I had uh, five or six years of Arabic. I at one point had, I would never describe myself as fluent, but I was uh, capable as an Arabic speaker, I can't anymore. But uh, uh, well, when I when I lived in the Middle East, I did speak Arabic at various points in time. My Hebrew has uh, gone from you know between poor and reasonable. 
So yeah, I, I have some some Latin training and uh, also learned some Spanish uh, as, as time has gone on. But uh, I think the, my people say, well, how did you you know there, there's there's no tie between my academic training and my business experience. And to me, I, I very, I'm very quick to point out that no, no. To me, I see there's a natural connection. I was a I was a business person that thought as a social scientist. That is about your, and that's why it worked in the software business, in particular, where human capital is the primary means of production, where you're. Where SPSS, if they have $100 million in revenues, your gross margin is 90%. So it's not like a $300 million manufacturing company. Your gross margins are 30%. So you're not really of that many people in a $300 million manufacturing company, but you got a lot of people in a $300 million software company. And how do you get all of those people to coordinate, and to row together and kind of, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's work. And the more intelligent you are about it, I think the more effective you can be. And understanding things from a social science, science from a, my social scientific uh, perspective, I, it helped me every day. Every day I did business. Now, I learned technically how to do business. Later on, and uh, you know the, the, the last stint as a chief financial officer was the toughest one experience because I hadn't had an accounting course. But uh, uh, but in, in that uh, that that whole other story. But there's um, but I, I to me that again going back to your direct question on my my Middle Eastern background, my background in the Middle East. Uh, once you develop that, these are wonderful people, they're smart, they're deserving of respect, and they're really different <laughs> mentally. So it's not their responsibility to understand who I am. It's my responsibility to understand who they are. And when you accept that responsibility, it really leads to much more success than not. And that's what it's all about, right? Is there anything else that we might have missed when talking about SPSS internationally, your role with helping small companies on boards internationally, or any of the other things that you talked about? No, we covered a lot of ground here. Yeah. Well, Ed Hamburg, thank you very much for this conversation. My pleasure.